0: Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson, and today I have the good fortune of speaking with Susan Turner Haynes about her new book, Chinese Nuclear Proliferation, How Global Politics is Transforming China's Weapons Buildup and Modernization, which is put out by Potomac Books. Susan, welcome to the show.
1: Glad to be here.
0: It's good to have you here, and before we get going, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about your background.
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, I received my Ph.D. in political science from George Mason University. Um, My subfields or concentrations were in international relations and comparative politics. And my research area or my area of interest uh, initially was Sino-Russian relations. I studied that for about five to six years um, and then kind of segued into uh, the nuclear relations of those two countries and then looked. Specifically, at Chinese nuclear proliferation and the dynamics and structure of their nuclear arsenal, the sophistication thereof, and the expansion.
0: Okay, thank you. And what specifically got you to write this book? What what did you want to specifically address by t- by choosing this topic?
1: Um, absolutely. Well, later than before, so I was into uh, Sino Russian relations before, and then I started being really interested in uh, their arms transfers and their military. As a sinologist, as someone who studies China and who considers themselves kind of an expert on um, Chinese relations and Chinese politics, it it was an interesting gap. Um, I I was also studying nuclear proliferation at the time, and I saw that obviously a lot of popular attention, if we want to say that say it that way, is focused on Iran. Um, a lot of attention focused on North Korea. A lot of policy uh, is directed towards those two areas, as well as its media attention and popular attention. And then when you look into the scholarship, you have obviously a huge uh, or a robust literature from the Cold War period that looks at U.S.-Soviet relations, the Cold War arms race, and the like. And then you have kind of this new contingent of scholars that are looking at India and Pakistan, some of which are actually kind of putting it in the same framework, uh, the same arms race framework as the Cold War. And and really what I noticed was kind of a gap in terms of China, um, specifically I believe in foreign affairs, maybe a decade ago now, uh, China was labeled the forgotten nuclear power in the fact that it just kind of, it was a nuclear uh, weapon state, but one that didn't garner a lot of attention. Um, and the reason for that, uh, or one of the reasons, uh, was the assumption that China had a pretty minimal nuclear force and that the expansion or the development of that force was quite gradual. Um, when we, or uh, er, if we can um, explode that assumption or kind of undermine that assumption that then China all of a sudden becomes a more important player on the nuclear landscape. And the research that I was looking at once I started looking uh, more deeply, that assumption came into question, right? The fact that China was uh, a a benign nuclear power, so to speak, or one that really was satisfied with, with having a minimum nuclear deterrent.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic, and it made me do a lot of thinking about my, my assumptions about, about China's nuclear arsenal. And to get into the main arguments that you make in the book, I think it would benefit the listeners to understand how you look at policymaking in China. You make a big deal out of this idea of institutionalization and how the Chinese government functions. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about how the Chinese government sets policy as it pertains to nuclear weapons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, one of the things that I do differently in this book, so that there is a gap kind of in the literature on Chinese nuclear weapons admission, but of the literature that is available, um, one of the deficiencies that I would argue is that people generally look at one perspective. So, people, if they think um, that China is becoming more aggressive, the evidence that they would uh, cite for that might be solely uh, quotes from the military or military documents. Um, conversely, if people are saying, no, China is continuing its uh, minimum deterrent strategy, then they would cite solely uh, state documents or things like that. Um, the perspective and the approach that I take in the book is actually to look at three different sectors of um, kind of uh, actors they're involved in Chinese policymaking. So I look at the Chinese military, um, Chinese uh, academics or those who are in and uh, around academia, experts as you will, and then also looking at the state. And the reason that I look at those three kind of different subsets, or those three different sectors is because when you look at policy making in china more broadly over time it has become a more uh, diversified or more pluralistic process Um, the more important the decision that is being made the more actors that are uh, involved in that process as long as it's not something of um, a crisis situation we're talking about strategy on a grander scale, um, you're looking at a more pluralistic process where actors are kind of brought in and, and specifically even actors that are outside of the Politburo and things like that, where expertise is kind of um, is wanted and, and insight is wanted on, on specific topics to, to help make policy. So that's why I took that approach.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting approach, and it gets into the complexities of decision-making, even in seemingly the Communist Party dominating China, but it, mm-hmm. it gives a layer of complexity that's, that's very nicely done. And as someone who's written a little bit about nuclear weapons, not, in, not related to China, but more from a European perspective, the first chapter of your book talks about nuclear strategy, and for listeners out there, it's a very useful chapter in terms of defining the debates about strategy and what the different nuclear strategies are. So I, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about how you define strategy and the different approaches to nuclear strategy that are outlined in that chapter.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, I'm glad that you found the chapter helpful. It really does contextualize uh, the remainder of the book, and it's something that I found was very important. Um, in terms of strategy, strategy broadly, I tried to talk this briefly about what strategy is which is you know using military for kind of political aims but then how nuclear weapons really change the concept of strategy because all of a sudden with nuclear weapons it was no longer specifically the use of force right to achieve um mm-hmm. a political aim right the use of military force but all of a sudden with nuclear weapons the threat of force became a strategy in and of itself. It wasn't a tactic, but an actual strategy. And uh, using threat, the threat of violence, actually trumped uh, the use of force itself. So we see that, sh- that shift when nuclear weapons enter the scene. Um, and that is what we would call deterrence, right? Where you, um, you, you uh, use a threat of force to prevent um, another actor or another state in this instance from pursuing action. And that, of course, we credit um, to Thomas Schelling. um, and, And in... Deterrence is kind of the mainstay or the hallmark, if you will, of nuclear strategy. Ever since nuclear weapons have kind of entered the scene, deterrence is really the the cornerstone of how states have used nuclear weapons in military strategy. Um, conversely, there's there's a concept of compellence. Um, generally, deterrence has been um, what states have used. Now, with that being said, one of the frustrations that I had in entering this literature initially was that there's um, a plethora of adjectives that people put in front of deterrence. And then they say, okay, this is a strategy. We have a uh, limited deterrence. We have minimum deterrence. We have flexible deterrence. We have maximum. We have expensive. We have, you know, I mean, you start reading the nuclear literature and there are dozens of descriptors uh, that are attached to deterrence. And while wading through those, I thought we really need to um, cut through all of these adjectives and have a clear-cut understanding of specific types of nuclear strategies so that we can look across, have a cross-section of all the different um, nuclear states and say, okay, which states have employed what strategies at what point in time. Um, so that's really what I'm doing with that first chapter is to describe specific types of deterrent strategies. Um, and I, I list, um, specific types of strategies uh, going from initially what I would call existential deterrence. Um, and that is when you're looking at states who um, have nuclear capabilities, um, they might not have the ability to uh, deliver a nuclear bomb on, you know, have delivery systems, but they have enough capability to, um promote fear in their enemies and enough to kind of use that as leverage. And so that's the first type. Then we go up to um, what I'm calling minimum deterrence, which is enough to uh, have a second strike against an enemy. So you can absorb a first strike and then send whatever you have remaining uh, delivery systems over to your enemy. Um, And then we have limited deterrence, which I'm classifying as the ability to actually fight a nuclear war um, extensive deterrence, which is full on, um, uh, massive attacks after being struck. So the second strike is actually, um, kind of a, a total annihilation type strategy. And then maximum deterrence, which is actually, uh, kind of holding a first strike over an enemy's head. So saying, if you pursue, uh, action X, um, I will, you know, I have the ability to strike you first. Uh, so those are five specific types of nuclear deterrence that I outlined in that chapter.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting, and you also bring up the term <laughs> counterforce, yes. which I, I read. I read it, and I'm still. I mean, you use a bunch of terms very nicely, from counterforce to counterleadership, and all this, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Is there is there how do how do we define counterforce, and is is it a useful term at all in your in your estimation?
1: Um, so it is a useful term and I'm glad that you bring it up because really when you get into the literature, the two terms that you see the most are counter value and counter force. So counter value, meaning that, um, a nuclear strategy is looking at specific, uh, soft targets or, uh, city targets, population targets. So they're more like civilian targets and that's a counter value strategy and a counter force strategy uh, by definition is one that counters the forces of, um, of an opponent or of an enemy. So that would be, you know, striking another state's nuclear facilities or, or nuclear weapons arsenal or something like that. Um, and, and what I kind of present in this chapter is that that in and of itself is kind of a limiting dichotomy and those terms themselves are quite narrow. Um, so you know, rather than just saying, okay, there's these counter-value strategies and there's counter-force uh, strategies. Really, when you when you start digging down, um, states don't limit themselves in those ways, right? Where it's only cities mm-hmm. or it's only weapons. Uh, what we generally see are what I've kind of termed counter-recovery strategies, which is trying to limit. Um, an enemy's ability to recover, so striking anything that might be um, useful for that objective, or like you mentioned counter-leadership, which is striking uh, the leadership of another country or the enemy country as well as counter-industrial, so uh, countering industrial targets. Um, And so that's just something, it it broadens the scope of um, targets that are available for a specific objective.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting points, and it made me think a lot about how I've thought about these terms. Uh, so I think, I think it's, it's a successfully done and, and useful for any reader who's, use, or who's interested in nuclear strategy or debates about nuclear strategy. And another thing that I found interesting, and it really begins chapter three, is this idea of how the Chinese have traditionally defined deterrence. And you, you, you talk about how Chinese are moving in some ways toward a more Western uh, version of the of defining deterrence. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that issue.
1: Um, absolutely. So deterrence, or in the, in the Chinese word, it's weishi. But um, China was very, or I should say Chinese policymakers, were very reluctant for a long time to uh, adopt the term deterrence. And you can see this in their white papers, in the Chinese white papers. You go back to uh, 1995, 1997, the earlier white papers. Um, they not only, you, you don't just see an absence of the use of deterrence as a word. You actually see, uh, for lack of a better phrase, you see the vilification of deterrence. Because for, uh, in Chinese, the term deterrence really uh, was the same as the term, "compellence." So in the West, we can credit Thomas Schelling for kind of picking apart these two terms. That deterrence meant um, preventing action uh, by again, threatening the use of force. So preventing action from threatening force. But then Schelling was very specific to say, well, then there's this this other um, idea that we have called compellence, And that actually forcing action uh, by threatening the use of force. So you are compelling someone to act. Um, and, and those are two distinct concepts in the West. Uh, in China, by contrast, the term deterrence didn't have, um, wasn't as narrow. So compellence and deterrence were kind of lumped together in the Chinese definition. And because of that, uh, China felt as though, it or Chinese policymakers, very much considered it to be a much more aggressive term than what we considered it here in the West. Because of that, again, it, China, uh, the Chinese white papers really um, vilified deterrence in their initial white papers saying, you know, the Soviet Union or, you know, at that time Russia and the United States need to abandon their, you know, uh, destructive deterrence policy. Uh, They said, you know, we are not a state that uh, adheres to uh, a deterrent policy. And that's kind of the rhetoric that you see there in the 1990s and even in the early 2000s. Then you see a shift, and it's really a shift. And I I do, I'm glad that you made this point because I made this point in the book. It's not a shift to, once they start using the term deterrent, it's not that they're accepting that Chinese definition, which also includes compellence. It's really an understanding of, okay, if we are going to define deterrence in this limited um, way that the West has come to accept it, then we can accept that our nuclear force is meant to deter adversarial aggression. And that's the kind of rhetoric that Chinese policymakers started adopting in the mid-2000s.
0: Yeah, it's an, import, it's an important point to make, and it raises the question, I'm going to throw this at you, and it's a very broad question, but I think it gets to what you're doing. I mean, you're looking at the evolution of Chinese nuclear strategy by looking at sources from different levels and in the, the institutionalization process of setting policy, but how has Chinese nuclear policy evolved? I mean, as far as you, you relate it in Chapter 3 and develop it, how has Chinese nuclear strategy begun to change in the recent time?
1: Um. What I argue in the book, and I, I'm trying to kind of uh, omit some of the jargon that I use in the book and that kind of thing. Um, if we don't have the context for that, but basically, what I am arguing is that it is becoming more aggressive. And in a that nutshell, um, that's what I see. And if we go down um, into different levels, we see kind of the consideration of different options that were just simply not on the table previously. So you are seeing the idea that perhaps um, China needs more nuclear weapons than uh, they were previously satisfied with. Um, Perhaps um, the no first use doctrine needs to be reconsidered and China might consider launching its nuclear weapons when there's warning of an attack, something that previously really wasn't considered. Um, Those targets that we talked about previously um, whereas before their strategy was more counter value, meaning, you know, completely centered upon cities, um, what we see over time is a greater consideration or an expansion of um, possible targets to include um, other, other states, military forces, leadership forces, industrial forces, and the like. So you see a broadening of target options, a a broadening of um, use options, and an expansion of uh, weapon systems and types that they believe might be useful in the future. So all of that kind of adds up to uh, a more aggressive nuclear strategy, or at least we could say a, a more advanced nuclear strategy. Than something that we would equate with minimum deterrence.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's how I read it too. And it, what's interesting about it is s the academics and the military seem to be much more forthright about that changing posture than the government is. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that. How you, uh, you know, the sources seem to uh, make that point.
1: Absolutely. Um, and again, I'm glad that you mentioned that because as I mentioned previously, like when you look at, if you just take one slice of the pie, so to speak, and you just look at the state, you're going to have one perspective. But it won't just academics or just the military. And so it is kind of an interesting thing to see across view of what's happening. Um Of course, the most aggressive voices um, that we find in the Chinese literature are going to be from the military. When you look at military manuals, it's it's actually quite striking how um, how different these documents are or how different the wording is from generals than they are from, um, you know, those in the foreign ministry. You're like, oh, my goodness, is this the same, you know, country? Are we, are we looking at the same strategy here? So that can be quite striking. Um, in the same vein, I should say that most of the military documents, when we're looking at manuals and things like that, they have this um they they still make overtures to the state position like they'll still say okay we absolutely are on board with no first use but then further down in the military manual it will contradict itself uh quite blatantly <laughs> and so that's quite interesting whereas when you're reading state, you know state documents or you know chinese foreign ministry documents they're very very consistent um over and over you know repeating the same rhetoric or propaganda, if you will. Um, so you see a very consistent position uh, over time in the state's uh, literature and in their rhetoric. Now, I will say, uh, what you can do with the state literature is kind of read between the lines, so to speak, and see what what things are omitted, um, what what wording has changed over time. But it's a very very subtle. Um, subtle way in which to try to perceive change. And then when you go into um, academia, you still have that subtlety, but you have less of it. You might have a few more brazen scholars who, um, who are kind of putting some ideas out there that are going against the state, or perhaps just aren't entirely consistent. And then when you go in the military, it's where you can have a direct contradiction.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine it's by accident, though. I, I mean, it seems to me that that ambiguity is, is almost intentional in a way to give, I don't know, to give Chinese the government options or kind of have people really thinking about what China is doing. And I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but the U.S. tends to be ambiguous on some of the, its nuclear policies and when it would use nuclear weapons to, for various foreign policy purposes. So I think, I think that's, that's an interesting point. And at the end of the day, though, one of the the reasons that the Chinese are presumably increasing their nuclear capabilities is reaction to international events, and in particular, the behavior of the United States. So I was wondering if you would say a bit more about how the United States uh, has influenced uh, Chinese nuclear policy.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, you know... The one thing that I think most people uh, look to when they're looking at uh, what China is doing in terms of the nuclear realm, um, the most obvious variable I think these days is the um, United States ballistic missile defense. So you're looking at kind of a quintessential example of the security dilemma where the United States, by increasing its nuclear defenses... Um, even if the United States rhetorically says over and over again, this is for, you know, so-called rogue states, they're, they're, it's meant to defend against uh, incoming missiles from Iran and North Korea. Nevertheless, by increasing um, our nuclear defenses, we are decreasing the security of China because it's undermining China's ability to secure a um, second strike. And... And as much as the United States is doing that, China, it, it's going to be, it, it's going to invoke a countermeasure or a counterresponse. Um, and what China is choosing to do is increase its offensive nuclear weapons to counter that, right? Because as, as the United States is China, if you read the, the Chinese literature, they often talk about the sword and the shield. So if you have a shield, that allows you to use your sword more freely. And that's what they see happening, China sees happening. So to the extent that you have this this shield, um, mutually assured destruction, and the whole concept of deterrence starts eroding quite quickly because now you have the ability to strike first. Fear of a second strike becomes less and less the stronger uh, shield that you have. And so how can China counter that? Well, one of the ways is for China to try to find ways in which to penetrate that shield or, in this case, U.S. ballistic missile defense. And so, you know, we can uh, or they can develop more missiles that can overwhelm our interceptors. And that's kind of what we see playing out. Um, Of course, I've also mentioned in the book that there are other variables decide U.S. ballistic missile defense in terms of um, prestige that we see happening. And then there's some limiting factors as well. But if we're going to point to one specific thing, that's the dynamic that is the most poignant.
0: Yeah, what really interested me in the book is how the Chinese really see the United States, at least in some ways, using its hegemony to bully the rest of the world and create this new world order, and that the United States, based on its military adventurism, I mean, who's to say it, it can be trusted? I mean, that's that's what I think it comes through in the book. And another thing that, that, that I found very interesting was this idea that the Chinese, it sounds very similar to Russia, actually, that they just don't buy this argument of rogue states <laughs> um, right. sending missiles. Sending missiles to the United States, like that's just you know, you know we don't we don't believe it. It's a cloak for something more sinister, and you see that over and over again uh, in the rhetoric. And I was wondering you could say a bit more about about that at the angle of the equation.
1: Yeah, so um, kind of is what you said, which is how they characterize um, U.S. intent. So when you are looking at you know, a threat perception. So how how big of a threat does the United States pose China? Well, that question um, requires you to look at two things, Uh, the intent and the capability of the country in question. So of the United States. So you're looking at, you know, U.S. ballistic missile defense and you're seeing this and you're saying, you know, this has the ability to undermine um, Chinese uh, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And they keep, they mean the United States, keeps building more and more interceptors. So the, ca- the capability is there to kind of undermine um, their nuclear force, right? And also he- what we read with the Chinese rhetoric is why is the United States continuing to build up its missile defense when we're really talking about, uh, in the case of Iran, not even a nuclear power yet. In the case of North Korea, mm-hmm. quite, quite limited. Um, so why, you know, the energy, the time, and the money into building up a more robust ballistic missile defense system? Now, with that being said, perhaps if the United States was a different um, country with a different history, even the capabilities themselves uh, alone, I should say, the solely the capabilities wouldn't kind of send off alarm bells if you were, if it were. But um, what we're also looking at is the marriage of capabilities and intent. And mm-hmm. just as you've mentioned previously, China has a deep skepticism of the United States. So if the United States, uh, the U.S. president says this is solely meant for Iran and North Korea, um, Chinese policymakers and leaders just solely do not take that at face value. And the reason being that they're in their um, eyes or in, in their perspective, uh, the United States has um, used its Hegemony for um, to intervene intervene in the affairs of other states and to use its military force according to whatever ha- whatever it wants to, um, and so they they see an intent that um, they they think that the United States is intent on keeping a U.S.-led global order. And they also see a history of the United States taking aggressive military action to ensure that that remains the case. So when you have that intent, or perceived intent, I should say, um, married with what they see as um, overwhelming, kind of um, growing, unnecessarily growing uh, defense capability, there's just a degree of skepticism there.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And another thing I didn't realize to the degree that you describe in the book is how China is watching very carefully developments in U.S. conventional weapons and this right. this process, which I didn't know a lot about, and I still don't know a lot about. I mean, I mean, I read it in your book, but uh, I mean, there's obviously I could, there's always more to read on any subject. Uh, conventional prompt global strike forces. I was wondering if you'd say uh, more about that subject.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, as I as said before, in terms of you know, a lot of people are going to say that the expansion and sophistic- and increased sophistication of the Chinese nuclear force is uh, simply a measured response to U.S. ballistic missile defense. Um, that, in a nutshell, is what a lot of people would say as an explanation. However, it does become more complex than that and more nuanced. And and this is one of the nuances that you're that you're pointing out, which is also the increased conventional capabilities of the United States. Um, and this gets to, so if U.S. political missile defense is the shield that we're talking about and we're, we're ever strengthening and ever thickening this shield. Um, China also sees at the exact same time that we're thickening the shield, we're also sharpening our sword. If I can continue the metaphor um, and by sword, that's these conventional prompt global strike Uh, this global strike system, which is um, fast, uh, conventional, intercontinental missiles. And what China fears is that these weapons could be used against its nuclear force or against critical um, infrastructure assets, that basically we could use these weapons and this system um in a way to um, really get at their their nuclear capabilities, and in that instance, technically, under their no first use doctrine, um, they wouldn't respond with nuclear weapons. But what is kind of straining the credulity of that assumption is, well, what if you know they're using these advanced capabilities, the United States is using these advanced capabilities? in a way to harm our nuclear capabilities, well, then we could respond uh, with nuclear capabilities. And so basically what I'm saying in the book and and what I've read in the literature in terms of the Chinese literature is that no longer is it safe to assume that a country's nuclear forces are its nuclear forces and its conventional forces are its conventional forces, and these two things are separate. For a long time, China kind of did assume that. But now they're looking at the United States and seeing how these two things can be uh, considered in tandem, and how they can be together to a pretty big threat, specifically uh, missile defense with conventional uh, prompt intercontinental missiles.
0: Yeah, it, it, it adds a nice layer of complexity to your book, and building uh, building off that analysis, you in Chapter 5, you have a, a very good section on the regional powers, and you go through a number of countries and how they fit into Chinese calculations. On nuclear policies, and we don't have to go over all of them. Although you know, feel free to mention the stuff that you feel particularly important. But what caught my attention in the chapter is how the United States gets blamed, in in essence, for the nuclear uh, issues with Iran and North Korea. As, or more to the more to the point, that the United States is seen as really provoking the issue with these countries. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about uh, how those or China perceives the nuclear buildup of North Korea and Iran.
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, I included that chapter because, you know, China, just like the United States, is not in a vacuum. And it is important to realize, you know, that it does have a a matrix of threats or, you know, it has uh, a lot more neighbors nuclear neighbors and uh nuclear dynamics to consider we're not just looking at you know the cold war where you're looking at one-on-one or or, you know two adversaries who are looking just at one another and then no one else kind of in the mix so china absolutely does have other players but um as you're mentioning what i found in the literature uh really overriding the overriding theme in the literature was that Really, it was the United States that was influencing every single one of these relationships. So, all of these different nuclear actors that are on China's periphery or who are, um, you know, uh, a little further away—that really, it's the United States that is the the actor that is kind of pulling the strings, the puppet strings, so to speak. And then specifically with Iran and North Korea, what the Chinese seem to perceive—and again, this is just in my readings and in the literature is that with with North Korea, China sees the United States as kind of playing this card so that like upping the North Korean threat, so to speak, so that it can um insert itself into regional dynamics and and keep a, a stronghold there. Um
0: yeah. and it's
1: it's incredibly interesting when you start thinking of Japan and South Korea, specifically Japan. Um the the trilateral you know, the trajectory of like the United States, Japan and China and then you insert North Korea and you know, to the extent that the North Korean threat is exaggerated or promoted or whatever have you, then um Japan has greater um cause for either acquiring its own nuclear defense um or nuclear arsenal or having um greater nuclear guarantees than the United States, both of which are against Chinese interests. So China sees the United States kind of uh, as as very much countering its um, influence in the region in that way. And then when you look at Iran, it's it's quite interesting the way that I was reading Iran because um, Iran is not as immediate as North Korea is in terms of Mm -hmm. just how obvious everything is with North Korea. But with Iran, um, I, I found it very interesting that still with the Iranian context, um, the main nemesis in the literature is the United States, which I found quite interesting, um, especially because China is kind of a big player in terms of non-proliferation, non-proliferation globally. Um, so you would kind of think that perhaps it would toe the line um, in terms of rhetoric with you know Iran not getting nuclear weapons and that kind of thing. And it does. You do see that with the state literature, but you also really see um, kind of the continued storyline of, well, the United States is still being this bully. So the overriding story on top of, you know, Iran pursuing nuclear weapons or if it is and that whole question is the bigger kind of confirmation that, well, whether or not this is the case, we still see you know, the United States being a bully in this context. We still see, you know, the United States getting its way. Um, and then I believe there was one article that I quoted in the book that even said, well, can you really blame Iran? <laughs> like, can you really blame Iran if, if they need nuclear weapons to protect them against the United States? And I thought that was really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I, I did too. And and the, also the argument that comes through is that the, the these economic sanctions on Iran – Mm-hmm. are designed in some way to kind of hurt China in a way they They've got a, a trading relationship with Iran that's right. the U S it's kind of orchestrating this to weaken Chinese power.
1: Yeah. Uh, so where it all goes back to the United States being kind of the nemesis, even through different dynamics, which I found really fascinating. Yeah.
0: And, and another thing, I, I mean, I'll, I'll move on to this point, but I just, I just found this so interesting that I'm really wondering just how much, I mean, you touch on this in the book, that the Chinese government is convinced that the North Koreans want a legitimate and open dialogue with the United States. Uh, that the United States is basically, you know, you, you said the reasons why they're inserting themselves into the region, but that the North Korean regime is a reasonable one that just wants to, you know, deal with the United States as a sovereign nation, when so much of the domestic glue in that country is basically anti-Americanism. right? <laughs> I, I, uh, I mean, it's no accident that... Uh, Kim Jong Un uh, put up that video of blowing up New York with nuclear weapons. <laughs> I, mean, um, I, I mean, I mean, I don't. I mean, it just it raises issues of how you you know you know make that argument. But it does it does the chapter does raise a lot of food for thought. I think and it's very interesting. Right. So as far as as, as the rest of the book, the you make the argument very effectively that one of the main reasons that China wants nuclear weapons and has a nuclear arsenal comes from international prestige considerations and what that brings to nations. Um, I think that that's I think that's very persuasive as far as other countries getting nuclear weapons. But the question then becomes why, if the if the Chinese perceive all these threats, why they haven't built their nuclear weapons arsenals faster and been more open about changing their force structures? I would wanted you to perhaps say more about why the Chinese perhaps haven't built a nuclear arsenal as fast as uh, might be expected, given some of their uh, strategic concerns?
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, I I go over some of these things in the conclusion, but one of the things, if we're looking at some, my entire analysis is really looking post-Cold War. So we're looking at, you know, uh, more than two decades here. And what I would say is at the beginning of that time period, you really have a strong economic constraint. So you mm-hmm. have China, which is absolutely economically booming, but at the same time, primary uh, objective, the primary priority of the country at that time is to grow its economy. And you know, when you're looking at a pie and you're trying to divide uh, money accordingly, uh, the advancing the nuclear arsenal of the country was not as important as advancing the economy. And that's kind of said in a variety of places. And I mentioned it, um, mentioned each quote and things, but even in military manuals, the military will say, okay, first and foremost is, uh, is our economy and then our military is second. And that, that understanding has, has seemingly shifted over time um, now that they have more uh, secure economic footing. But that seemed to be a constraint earlier on um the other thing that I would say in terms of kind of this prestige dynamic, it's a very interesting um, kind of contradictory uh, notion or element of of nuclear proliferation broadly, which is that nuclear weapons do bring prestige to countries. So uh, there's been a lot of literature to show that there that some element or some uh, independent variable of nuclear weapon states acquiring nuclear weapons is the prestige that they give that country um, at the same time um china has really kind of made a voice for itself and made a position for itself as a leader in nonproliferation in terms of um you know like even the npt and and things like that um and has actually become more ingrained in kind of this nonproliferation complex or or regime than even the United States. And so in some ways, it is becoming a leader in that aspect. Um, And really kind of, and and that's where it's kind of pointing to the United States and Russia and saying, you need to decrease your forces, you need to decrease your forces. And you have um, a lot of the states of the global south kind of looking to China for that leadership and for that instruction. So with that being said, that's also kind of a constraint on China's own growth to the extent that it can kind of put a foot in both realms and it can be this nuclear power, but that it can also be respected, um, by, by non-nuclear states. And so I think that it's an interesting line to try to toe, Um, and it's one in which it couldn't, it couldn't be in that position credibly. If it just blew out, you know, its nuclear force and really expanded that. Um, but also by being under the radar, it's, it's growing its force. So, and it's, in such a way as to not cause significant alarm, I would say, in the United States and in the West more broadly, Um, where we're looking at Iran, we're looking at North Korea, where a lot of the attention in the world is on trying to thwart um, new nuclear powers. And you have all the other, like the four or the five NPT nuclear weapon states those that are signatories of the NPT, all of them are decreasing their nuclear forces. So there's just not a big focus on the growth of um, the gradual growth, I should say, of, a nu- of an existing nuclear weapon state. And I think China is kind of uh, capitalizing upon um, the, the lack of alarm or the lack of attention on that gradual growth. So that, those are kind of some reasons that I see that it hasn't uh, just absolutely blown through the roof.
0: Yeah, it's a delicate balancing act and calibration, and I do think you make the argument effectively that China wants to be seen as this idea of a responsible international Mm -hmm. player that's almost reluctantly getting into, I mean, it's not publicizing it as much as perhaps other countries, but that it's it's doing the bare minimum to defend its interests against kind of the United States when you don't know what the United States' intentions are other than maybe dominating with its, its global order and getting involved in other countries' affairs, whether it's North Korea, or helping the Japanese create their theater missile defense forces, Oh right. they, they're, they're hoping. Oh, go ahead, go. With them. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, is, if, if, if China's actions can support that storyline, then it wins over more states, right? And it becomes yeah. a more benign power to more states.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a soft power. I mean, I mean, not yeah. exactly, but, mm-hmm. but in some ways, it's it's really meant to appeal to global public opinion. So I think that that's done very effectively and made me certainly uh, think about that. And at the end of the day, I mean, you you read this book, it's very clear, it's concise. I think this book will appeal to people who are interested in China, general readers, people interested in nuclear weapons. I think it's not written in a way that non-specialists won't understand what's going on. So I, I applaud you for that. But one of the one of the reasons the the book is written is at least in, from what I, my take on it is what the United States uh, can do or what the United States and China can do to have less chances of of uh, uh, nuclear issues becoming really dangerous in the coming years. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about your uh, advice that you give in the conclusion of your book about the future.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, that is one of the impetus behind the book, is to try to uh, forward a dialogue. And the more that we know about, or the more that we try to know, I should say, about the Chinese perspective, uh, the more that dialogue might have a chance at kind of getting off the ground. Um, and with my perspective of what China is is thinking and what Chinese policymakers seem to have as an understanding I I make a few recommendations. So when we're looking at a a post-New Start, so when we're looking at another multilateral treaty, whether that be a treaty that includes Russia, the United States, and China, or whether it might be a bilateral treaty between the United States and China, um, whatever that next treaty looks like, if we can get to a place of where we're even discussing that next treaty... Um my, my recommendation would be that China would be included in those conversations. That that next treaty isn't just the United States and Russia, but that China be included in that because, of course, New START is going to take Russia and the United States down to 1,550, which is still a lot more um, strategic arms than China has, but it's starting to get close. And so we need to start having that dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, it's not going to look the same. It just can't. It's not going to be an apples to apples. You decrease yours to your strategic arms to this, and I'll decrease, you know, our strategic arms to this. You know, it's not going to be a bean counter type treaty where we are decreasing uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles or something like that. Uh, it's unfortunately, it would need, I believe, to be much more complex than that. Um, one of the, the items that I mentioned that you mentioned kind of earlier in the interview is this concept of ambiguity. So yeah. the United States and China have seemingly different ideas of the utility of ambiguity. So China traditionally has been very ambiguous as to the structure of its nuclear force. Now, that's changing a lot, um, but it's still quite ambiguous. And so a treaty might help to clarify what capabilities China actually has, and maybe China can be more clear on that. Um, At the same time, the United States has been quite ambiguous on its conditions of use, um, strategically so. And that is both with its uh, nuclear missiles, but even more so with its advanced conventional missiles, which China is quite, um, quite concerned about right, that the United States just really hasn't committed to what these forces are for. Um, And so, you know, of course, probably the the number one thing China would like to see is the United States commit to a no first use treaty. I I don't see that happening. So there are other ways in which the United States could clarify its intent of specific things. Um, Also, bulleted missile defense, while we've rhetorically said things, uh, there's not been any kind of actual confirmation of that, nor has there been um, really clear rhetoric um, about the conventional weapons. So a treaty could address that, or even a dialogue could address some of those ambiguities that really strike at the heart of, um, or strike fear into a lot of Chinese policymakers and really breed that skepticism. Um, But you also have, specifically with the United States and Russia, you have, of course, tactical nuclear weapons which right now are not covered in the New START Treaty. And when you include uh, tactical nuclear weapons or non-structured nuclear weapons, the numbers of the United States and Russia really become much, much more elevated, even though we don't know precisely those numbers now. And so that's another way to kind of decrease the capability, uh, the ambiguity surrounding the actual capabilities of the United States and Russia. So that's something else that can be kind of considered in um in future dialogues and treaties and there's several other areas Uh, again it's it's not going to be something that's as simple as you know china puts a ceiling on its strategic weapons and then the united states now goes down to a thousand or five hundred it really would need to um be much more nuanced than that uh, for china to sign on
0: yeah, there there's interesting points. And in your estimation, do you think that the territorial issues China has, I mean obviously Taiwan, but even even others, it has with Japan, Philippines, Vietnam, those can be dealt with separately from a nuclear agreement or would they have to be somehow put together in some type of framework or how how would you how would you deal with that issue of the China's territorial claims?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that's an excellent question, too. I think in some ways it can be dealt with separately. However, um, the dynamic with Japan and uh, the United States uh, having kind of a nuclear umbrella or any kind of guarantees of uh, missile defense, I think that would have to be included in the treaty. So, maybe not addressing the territorial um issues outright although taiwan probably so but with the senkaku taiyu islands maybe not a direct mention of those but i believe china would want to have some kind of guarantees in terms of not um the u.s not aiding japan and south korea with missile defense or something like that um Mm -hmm. and kind of diving a little bit more into those dynamics
0: interesting yeah I mean, it 's going to be interesting how it plays out i mean i you 're a political scientist i 'm a historian we're very historians are very wary about <laughs> predicting the future, but your book uh, gives us much food for thought and once again I'm, uh, you know i 've taken a lot of your time today and i 'd like to thank you for speaking with me. Um, I enjoyed reading your book, and once again it 's a very good book that general readers and specialists alike can get a lot of food for thought about Chinese nuclear forces and Uh, the future uh, even of U.S.-Chinese relations. So I congratulate you on that.
1: Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.
0: And before we end here, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about your future uh, plans in teaching or research.
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, I failed to mention at the beginning, I'm an assistant professor currently at uh, Lipson University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm doing right now, and I teach a lot of their international security courses. I teach international law, um, uh, international security, one and two, those kind of things, international relations, um, and very much enjoy it. Um, I'm, right now, my current research is actually on um, the motivations behind China acquiring specific nuclear weapons systems. Um, it was kind of a question that came out of this particular book and research which was um, the motivations behind China acquiring, like, the JL-2 uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile, why it chose to pursue that technology um, rather than put that money into additional ICBMs um, or, you know, MIRV. I I don't mention this a lot in the book because it kind of was a development that really came to the fore after publication, but with China MIRVing... Um, some of its newer uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. I, I've been looking into the motivations behind that. That's kind of where my my present research is. Um, what I what I would love to see. I, I still want to teach. I love teaching. It's definitely my passion. Um, but I'd also lend you know uh, policy expertise. I was up in D.C. for six years, and so I my my goal is kind of to write policy relevant. Um, policy-relevant literature and to do policy-relevant research.
0: Sounds fascinating. And uh, once again, thank you for talking with me. Um, I've I've taken up a lot of your time, but I wish you the best of luck in, in the future.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate it.